This past Friday afternoon, I attended a vigil for DeMarcus Payne, the young man I lit a candle for a couple minutes ago. He's a 12-year-old boy who was shot and killed by a drive-by shooter somewhere around the corner of McClure and Broadway. There was a previous event at the Gateway Building on Thursday, I believe it was, that you may have seen on the news, a gathering of community leaders, including a number of people from this church, to really honor him and to ask what we can do to stop violence in our city. But this was a smaller gathering out on the corner where he was shot with maybe, I don't know, 25 or 30 people there, a more informal gathering. After 24 years of being a minister in this city, I know that if I show up at an event like this, I will probably be asked to speak. And I'll probably be asked to do a prayer. I, that's, that's what happens. So I know that that's probably what's gonna happen. When I went to seminary, one of our professors used to tell us that we should be ready to offer a public prayer on the spur of the moment at any time of the day or night. Just. <laughs> and you know what? I'm all right with this role. I'm all right with it. I know that if I don't want to do that, I can stay home and watch, you know, Caso Cerrado, which is my favorite TV show. But how can I stay home when a 12-year-old boy has been shot by a drive-by car? How can I stay home for that? Well, I gave my UU style of prayer, which an Episcopalian friend of mine referred to as a humanist prayer. I hadn't even thought of that exactly, but she said, you know, you, you give a humanist prayer. And I said, well, I guess that's probably right. And after I finished, then another woman in the group who was a neighbor woman said that she wanted to pray too. And she did. And she offered a much more traditional Christian prayer, asking God to intervene to help this family and urging everyone present to turn to Jesus for salvation. And then her friend prayed too, and she offered a similar kind of prayer. Both of their prayers were loving and sincere and heartfelt and compassionate. And I could feel that in, in what they said. I was also aware of my own reactions and that I realized that I did not see the world in exactly the same terms that they did. I have somewhat of a different frame of reference. But I appreciated what they did. And after the two women prayed, then another woman who was the aunt of DeMarcus Payne said she would like us to do the Lord's Prayer all together which we did. And I must admit that felt kind of comforting to me. And it felt like we, it kind of brought everyone together in a certain way. Although I'm not sure that everybody in that group had a 
Christian background, but anyway, it had kind of a unifying effect, I think, on the group. So three distinct events that are all in some generic sense referred to as prayer. Each one aiming to bring some hope and healing to a deeply grieving family and the community around that family. So we live in a culture that is filled with different worldviews. That is the nature of our world, and I don't think that's going to change anytime very soon. There are people who look at the world in different ways, but it's also true that we have common concerns and problems because everybody at that meeting Thursday night and at that vigil on Friday, every single person was upset that this had happened and knew that it wasn't right and knew that we need to do something about it. That part was absolutely universal and you could feel that. So we have different ways of looking at the world but we have a lot of common issues. The shooting of DeMarcus speaks to us of all kinds of issues, gun availability, gun violence, racial issues, neighborhood safety, policing techniques, just to name a few that we're all concerned about. We have a wonder group, wonderful group of people in our city called PCAV, Peoria Community Against Violence, some of them are in this room at this very moment, who have gathered together and are committed to bring down the rate of violence in our city. One of their challenges is to find a way to bring diverse groups of people together to work as a team, like the bundle of sticks story that Amy told this morning. One of the things I have decided to do this year, I have had this desire for some time, I want to do some mentoring in the high schools, and I've been thinking about how I can do that with young people. And so this year, I enrolled myself in a mentoring program that takes place in the Peoria High Schools. Uh, I'm going to be at Manual, which is the school I wanted to be in. And so I'm going to try something that is different for me. This program has been around for a number of years, and it's got a certain kind of flavor to it. It's called Elite, if you've probably heard of that. And it's got kind of a tough love kind of flavor to it. And also, there's a kind of spiritual underpinning that's kind of evangelical Christianity. And I realize that I'm not actually totally comfortable with all that. But you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. I've made that decision. Because I want to see... Uh, I want to see what I could possibly do and, and what things are going on. And I'm also convinced that the program works, actually. So that's pretty amazing. I'll let you know how that goes. So I'm somewhat stepping out of my comfort zone to work in an environment that's not exactly mine. We have to do something. At least I feel the need to do something, to create hope where there is no hope. According to Carl Cannon, who runs this program, we are now up to three million people in our jails and prisons. We're up to three million. 
according to Carl. If you're concerned about this number three million, and I don't even, how can we even conceive of that number? Come to hear Michelle Alexander at Bradley on Thursday night at seven o'clock because she is one, she is actually, I think, the foremost expert in this country on the issue of mass incarceration. I think she probably is the expert person. So come and hear her at seven o'clock Thursday. We need to do something to change that. We absolutely need to do something. As a Unitarian Universalist minister, I find myself all the time working with religious and community leaders who come from a different framework than the one I'm in. I just all the time, every, all day, every day, when I work out in the community. We just celebrated a few weeks ago, the holiday for Martin Luther King. Now, Martin Luther King also comes from a certain framework that is not exactly mine either. Martin Luther King talked about the promised land. We're going to get to the promised land. So where is the promised land? The promised land is an is a image that has a number of different meanings. And Martin Luther King was a very smart guy and knew exactly what all those meanings were. So let me just tell you a couple of those. You know, the night before King died, he gave that famous speech where he said, we as a people are going to get to the promised land. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get there. That was his last public speech. One of the images of the promised land comes from the book of Exodus in the Bible, when the children of Israel escape from slavery in Egypt and they are promised a land to go and live, which is the land of Canaan, and then they go and they get lost for 40 years and Moses comes and all those stories that most of us know, and then they get to the promised land, and then part of it that's not taught that much in Sunday school is that they basically wipe everybody out in the promised land, militarily, and then that, they get that land. So the, it, it has an image of a land where we can live a good life, but there's a shadow side to that too. And by the way, when the first uh, ex uh, colonists came over to North America, they thought that this was the promised land. This was the reenactment. Not all of them, but it was a common thought that this was the reenactment of the promised land myth. And the people in, in, in the Bible story, the, the children of Israel militarily defeat the Canaanites. Well, in a sense, the Native Americans who lived here were like the Canaanites. But it was God's promise to have this land. And so, so there's a shadow on this, too. Even though this is a symbol of something wonderful, there's a shadow on it, too. Well, during slavery, during the years of slavery, the promised land meant getting free. That's what the promised land meant. It, it was getting out of slavery. You know, there was also a connotation of the promised land that had to do with Canada, because in some ways Canada was the way, was the one place to be totally free. But it just, but it meant getting out. And so when people, you know, in the old, uh, songs from that era when the song says we're going to get to the promised land 
That's not a Sunday school lesson. That's speaking about the journey of a people to get free in the present. And when King uses that language in the civil rights time, again, it's not to reinforce somebody's story that they memorized for Sunday school. In the civil rights movement, it meant ending discrimination and Jim Crow. And then the United States would be the promised land. It would be the promised land in the sense that everyone was free. So there's this underlying metaphor of getting out of slavery and becoming free that goes through these different periods of history. So King is calling up these images when he says we're going to get to the promised land. I don't think he wants to call up that image of us taking over this land militarily. I don't think he wanted to call that up, but he certainly wanted to look at that. Uh, freedom, that freedom road. Martin Luther King is a Christian, and his theology is certainly not UU theology, although it is pretty doggone close in many ways. But here's my observation. This is what I want to share with you this morning. This is my observation. What I observe in our community is that when we think the message is on target. Like for example in the civil rights movement, when we as a people believed in freedom and equality and justice and that that was right on target, my observation is we don't worry about the theology very much. That's what I observe. Because the message is right on target. So if Martin Luther King wants to say, you know, the Lord will lead the way and we will get to the promised land, I think we're pretty much okay with that because we hear the message that's in that image and we think that message is right on. That's my observation. You can correct me in coffee hour if you want. <laughs> the nuns on the bus the nuns on the bus travel around and speak for economic justice. I really like the nuns on the bus. I actually, when I see them sometimes, I just want to get on the bus and go with them. I don't know if they'll let me in. I would have, I, never mind. But I, that's the way I feel. I want to get on the bus with the nuns on the bus. They're speaking the truth. They're coming out and just speaking the truth. But you know what? They don't look, they don't have the same theological perspective that I do at all. They've got a totally different worldview about what's going on. And their commitment to justice comes out of their theology. And yet when they come out and say what they say, I'm ready, I'm ready to join up. I really am. Because they're speaking a level of truth about our common experience, about what's happening in the world. And they express it in a certain way. So I'm inspired by that. And again, my, you know, I hear you use say some things from time to time, maybe something occasionally disparaging about some group. I'm not saying it happens all the time, but maybe once in a while. 
But I don't hear anybody saying that about the nuns on the bus because they resonate with what we think is important in life. We see justice in much the same way. Now I'm really going to say something outrageous. I told Diane I'd probably get in trouble for this. Sometimes the new pope inspires me too. Uh, I mean, he just does. <laughs> oh my God, now we've stepped over the line. Because sometimes this guy is speaking the truth. Sometimes. He really nails it. Sometimes this, I swear, this guy might be a universalist. I'm serious. <laughs> now he can't come out. <laughs> he can't come out. But when he speaks with that inclusive voice and speaks about poverty and being a church for the poor and speaks about welcoming everybody and all these old boundaries that are so upsetting and disturbing, we're gonna drop that stuff. You know, I get inspired. I'm not, I'm not going to convert. <laughs> I've decided. But I'm inspired and I feel deeply connected at that point. I really do. I feel, and I feel hopeful about the world in those moments. That makes me think, wow, this is amazing. This guy is saying these things. So, again, it is my observation about our way of being in faith is that when we feel the message about the world is on target, we are quite ready to just not worry about some of that other stuff. I don't know if you observe that or not, but you, I'm sure you'll tell me. I want to speak about Islam for a moment. There is a Muslim leader in the world right now who inspires me, really deeply inspires me. A Muslim leader who grabs me right at the depth of my being. And that is a young woman named Malala Yousafzai. I don't know if I said it right. She inspires me. She is the real thing. She's a young woman who was shot in the head by the Taliban for going to school and for publicly advocating for the right of girls to go to school. She's become a global humans, human rights leader. She's totally a global leader right now. Of course, she represents a kind of Islam that is totally different than the spiritual bankruptcy of people like ISIL, for example, who, are, who no loving person can condone their outrageous and barbaric behavior. No, no reasonable loving person can condone that. Thank goodness for Malala and that in my life, all of the Muslims I know are much more like her than they are like these confused, destructive people who are creating such an upset in the world. 
I am so grateful for people like Malala and other Muslim leaders that I know who stand up for human rights and stand up for freedom and inclusiveness. For me, she represents the best of Islam. Martin Luther King actually for me and other people too, but especially Martin Luther King represents the best of Christianity to me. And so I see in these faiths people who inspire me. And I see how ready we are to connect with those people. We're, we're ready to connect. Because I'll tell you, my friends, if we have to wait for the whole world to convert to Unitarian Universalism, <laughs> we better get more people coming to lunch with the minister. <laughs> we better start renting whole cities for Mardi Gras. That is not a reasonable expectation. Not a reasonable expectation. It seems to me that we're often willing to drop these worries when we feel that resonance with others about a vision of the world, a world where everyone is truly accepted and valued, a world where everyone has equal justice and a real opportunity to live a fulfilling life, a world where DeMarcus Payne would have the chance to grow up and be all that he could be. That's the world we want. That's what King called the promised land. That's a word for it. It's just a phrase. It's an image. The Dalai Lama, who is for me one of the people who represents the very best of Buddhism, the very, very best of Buddhism, writes about the word secular. And he talks about what the word secular means in India. Because India has what they call a secular society. Um, the Dalai Lama says that in India, secularism means that all religious faiths are respected and none preferred, and all those with no religious faith are equally respected. Equally respected. So there's the whole, everybody's in, and no one is preferred. So he said that's the definition of secularism in, in India. And that would be true religious freedom. All the religious people and all the non-religious people are respected. But no one would condone breaking the peace, no one would condone violence or hate direction, directed action toward any group. As many of you know, I am a big fan of the Parliament of the World's Religions. Matter of fact, I. There are 39 of us going to that in October. I can hardly believe it. One of, yeah, isn't that amazing? 39 people. The parliament people are very smart about this. They, are perfect, they understand how this works. They're not just a bunch of people who learned the words to kumbaya. The, what the parliament does is to focus on how the diverse people of the earth can come together to solve problems that face everyone. Okay? So the parliament is interested in 
identifying issues to focus everybody's energy on so that you don't come together and just argue, but you come together and say, what can we do? I remember hearing Nelson Mandela speak in, in Cape Town at the parliament, and he said, the re in order for the serious problems of the world to be solved, the religions will have to stop fighting with each other and work together. Isn't that an amazing thing? This year, the problems that have been identified for the parliament are climate change, uh, war and violence, and economic inequality. Those are the three they've identified. So they didn't identify how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, whether God is really a god or a goddess or a meaningless concept. They didn't identify those. And, and you know what? Those are interesting questions. I'm not opposed to talking about those questions. But they didn't identify those as the priority. The priority is what are we going to do on this planet so that we can live together and bring all that goodwill and all that energy to bear on those problems. How can we respond intelligently and quickly to climate change? How can we save our people from violence? How can we address huge differences in economic conditions? And how can we bring everybody into that discussion, whether they're religious or not religious? The Dalai Lama has really developed this and says it over and over again. He said, we have to have all the religious people involved and all the non-religious people involved. What are we going to do about China, which is predominantly non-religious? Are, are they not part of the discussion? Everybody has to be part of that discussion no matter what framework we use to view the world. When we truly put our hearts and minds into these tough problems, it will not matter so much if we are Christian or Muslim or atheist. There is not enough time to get derailed over those differences. There really isn't enough time. There isn't time to work that all out and convince everyone to be a UU or an atheist or a Buddhist before we start work. There is no time for that. That's a luxury. We can, that's sitting in the cafe and sitting around and talking, which is great, but there isn't enough time for that. We don't have that much time, not for these big problems. There's not enough time to convince everyone to be a UU or anything else. We need to come together as we are to save children's lives in Peoria on McClure and to create a place where people can live together in peace on this planet and create a future on earth. In the words of Francis David 500 years ago, we need not think alike to love alike. Thank goodness that is true because it gives us a chance. <laughs>